0: To me, what it comes back to, though, the most important thing, if you're going to be offering online education to a non-traditional audience, is you have to understand your mission.
1: Welcome to Higher Education Without Borders, a podcast series dedicated to education professionals worldwide. This series is hosted by Dr. Sental Nathan and Dean Hoke, Managing Partners in EduAlliance. Each episode is a conversation with thought leaders that will enlighten and provide some new thoughts on critical issues facing higher education. We hope you enjoy today's podcast.
2: Welcome to Higher Ed Without Borders, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Sintal Nathan in Abu Dhabi, in the United Arab Emirates, and with me is my co-host Dean Hoke in Bloomington, Indiana. Dean, how are you today? And will you introduce our guest?
3: Be happy to. Um, By the way, even though we're not matching your temperatures in Abu Dhabi today, we're actually starting to get a bit of an Indiana summer, which I am most thankful for. It's very nice here. Um, Speaking of a fellow Hoosier, we have with us today, Dr. Frank Dooley, who is the chancellor of Purdue University Global with an enrollment of about 36,000 students, most who earn their degrees online. Prior to coming to Purdue Global, uh, Dr. Dooley was senior vice provost for Purdue University where he gained an international reputation as a gifted and innovative teacher as well as a creative researcher. Uh, He has his bachelor's degree from St. John's is JD. So we have an attorney on here as well, I see. Uh, JD from uh, the University in North Dakota, his doctoral degree from Washington State University. He joined Purdue in the Department of Agricultural Economics in 1998. And good morning to you. How are you doing?
0: Dean, glad to be with you. And (laughs) 1998 seems like a long, long time ago, but it's gone by in a flash. But... uh... Yeah, uh, you're right. Summer is with us, and it's really nice to have it finally. So,
3: well, I'm certainly looking forward to the the winter. I'm not used to still. It's been a while. Um, why don't we go ahead and begin, Frank? I understand Purdue Global is a part of Purdue University overall, and it was created after Purdue acquired Kaplan University. I think in 2017, 2018, if I remember right. Correct. Help me a little bit with the background. Tell me why Purdue made this acquisition and tell me a little bit about the differences between the quote-unquote typical Purdue student and a typical Purdue global student.
0: Great, great questions. They really set the the stage for us today. Um, Mitch Daniels became the the president of Purdue um, in 2013, so he showed up in January of 2013 after he had completed his governorship um and early on one of the things Mitch has been um suggesting is that there is a change with online education and and as an institution you know one of his responsibilities for Purdue is we really need to understand where we should be going online what is our direction uh, he doesn't often use the word strategy. He likes to use the word action. So how are we going to come at this? In 2014, he he had a group. He worked at the provost at the time, and they studied, you know, other places looking to do online. How would you get there? And it was, you know, some really respected people on campus. They came back um, and gave the board and Mitch a plan, and they really thought it was fairly modest in its ambition. So we had a second group look in 2016. They came back and it was once again, I I think to the board's taste, it just didn't probably go far enough. Now, along that time, like a lot of other institutions, you did have online programs being developed. Uh, Actually, one of the reasons I was hired by Purdue in agricultural economics is we had an online uh, master's program that was created launched in 1999. Oh, so I didn't know that. It been, yeah, so, it, and believe it or not, uh, the partner that, it, so it's a joint M- MBA from Kelly and a master's in agribusiness from Purdue. And that's been going on since 1999. So it, it there is a long history and other departments did programs. Communication had a program of about 300 students. Education had a program. Engineering had programs as well. But but they were relatively small, and and it wasn't. They were local efforts rather than a university effort. Um, and Mitch continued to see, and you you saw places like Southern New Hampshire and Western Governors starting to really show. In Arizona State, for example, showing a lot of growth. At about the same time as, as as you know, as a college president, Mitch Daniels probably has a rolodex that's unmatched by many. And an old friend of his was Don Graham. Uh, Don Graham was uh, the the holder of Graham Holding, and one of their holdings was Kaplan, Kaplan University. And at the time, Kaplan was a for-profit. They were trying to exit because uh, for a variety, of a lot of the for-profits were trying to get out of the business of higher education. We were trying to get in the business. And we reached the agreement that there was a group that worked on the The transaction it was announced in late twen or early late in the academic year of twenty seventeen so about may first of twenty seventeen it took a year to get all the approvals from department of ed higher learning commission our state authority, and we went live on April second of twenty eighteen
3: An interesting time to start to say to least, considering the pandemic and everything else is just around the corner. And everything else, so fascinating. So, well, tell me a little bit for a second. Tell me a little bit about your students. What's the similar? What's the profile on them?
0: That, I, I think one of the things, and, and like you said in the introduction, I spent almost a decade working in the provost office at West Lafayette, largely working on undergraduate education programs. And if you were to put two, I'll, I'll focus on the undergrad students for the moment. If you two, put two populations of students side by side, they could not look more different demographically. And I'll, I'll just give you a couple statistics. Um, around 50% of the students at Global are uh, Pell eligible. Around 50% are first generation. Um, so, in, you know, Pell for me is a is a proxy for being poor or low income. And then you compare that to West Lafayette, they're about 17% Pell and about 20% first generation. So that's one big difference. Age is another difference. Um, 97% of the students at West Lafayette undergraduates are under the age of 24. Uh, You go to Purdue Global, I'm 16% of my students are under the age of 24, but virtually every one of them is active duty Army. So they're not a traditional college student in, in the way we think of them. And 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 as you look, you know, part time, full time, you know, West Lafayette, again, it's like 95 percent of the students are full time students. For me, it's uh, I think 84 percent of the students are part time students. So so all of these things. But but and then I think there's one other big difference is the students are at very different stages in their life as well, their life journey most of the students coming to West Lafayette start when they're 17 or 18 um they they come um largely they 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 come to college with uh, a 17 year old's view of the world they have opportunity in front of them they are very talented individuals but many of them one of the things they need to do in college is discover their path because they have so many alternatives available to them my students, in contrast, come to us on average in their 32, 33 years old. They've been, you know, most of them went to college for a year. In many cases, it didn't go well. And, and not that they didn't have ability, but they didn't maybe find the relevance they're looking for. Or you go back to the fact that a lot of them are low income. They, they didn't see that it made sense. So they went to work. Um They've now been working maybe in the same company for a decade and somebody comes, taps them on the shoulder one day and says, you know what, Dean, we really like your 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 work ethic. We like what you bring to the to our company. But if you want to move forward in life with us, you need to get some sort of a an associate's or a bachelor's, and, and that's gonna be what we have. And we'll help you with it. Many many of my students that the employer is helping pay for their education. So they come, my, my students come, they're not looking for discovery. Most of them know what they're going to do in their career, and they're looking to take a step forward in their career, um, and they're very interested in moving as quickly as possible because I think when you're in your 30s and you have a family, uh, you have a job, and all these other competing demands on your time... Uh, get, getting to to that end goal for them is really important as quick as that. So they they don't need to take electives to try to figure out what they want to do. They know what they want to do. They just need to get there as quickly as they can.
3: Understand. Central. Yep. Yeah.
0: That's uh,
2: quite uh, interesting. Uh, lead uh, Frank. As you know, uh, this podcast uh, will be going to literally several thousand educators around the world. Uh, many outside the u.s uh, and uh, many large universities around the world uh, have been thinking about these kind of uh, non-traditional students we're talking about those who don't have access who miss the boat if it, the, what you're describing is true in the u.s it's uh, m- much more true in many parts of the world uh, where gross enrollment issues much much uh, less so there the are many some as i i know some large universities are thinking and planning about extending their reach within their uh, respective regions to non-traditional students like the one you described and students who have access constraints to programs they need and what can they
0: learn from purdue global experience well central i mean it's a great question and it's you know it's a question that i remind myself of from time to time um I, i i think the the you, you know, in addition to what you said, I think COVID has also caused a number of institutions to, you know, we put all this effort to move stuff online, so now now let's have online programs, so that's a motivation. I think another motivation, at least in the United States, you know, we talk about the demographic cliff of, you know, falling numbers of students, so are you looking to... So. To me, what it comes back to, though, the most important thing, if you're going to be offering online education to a non-traditional audience, is you have to understand your mission. And if it doesn't fit with your mission, I would seriously question whether you should do it. And one of the the things that that Purdue has as part of, you know, we're a land-grant institution and we throw that word around, you know, Ohio State, a lot of the Big Tens, IU isn't, but, you know, uh, much of the Big Ten are land grants. There's, there's land grants in every state. But I don't know that people really understand what a land grant is. And the land grant universities were a creation of the Morrill Act of 1862. And the Morrill Act in it, and I, I wrote this down so so I make sure that I get it right, Uh, This is what it said as its purpose, um, was to promote the liberal and practical education of the industrial classes in the several pursuits and professions in life. And if you go to 1862, at that time, it was really the second part of the Industrial Revolution, an era of mechanization, and what society was telling the world is we need more educated people to take on these jobs in the mechanic arts, which is now what we know as engineering and agriculture and other areas. And that the traditional universities who grew up, I'll say, in the in a Greek model um, really weren't equipped to deal with this more technological part of, of society's needs. So when you look at Purdue as a land grant, and now you you advance, you know, 150 years, um, we still have that mission. We look at very much uh, land grants have been expanding opportunity. And there actually was a second Morrill Act in 1890, which created the HBCUs. Um, And then there was a third uh, extension of the land grant mission in the 1990s when land grant status was given to tribal colleges across the United States. So when you look at an institution like Purdue, one of the things Mitch Daniels and the trustees asked themselves, we're doing a really great job with the population we serve in West Lafayette. But we're not sure that we're doing anything to serve the population of working adults who at this point in time, once again, the the industrial revolution continues to turn. And now we're looking at the Internet of Things and more and more jobs require more training. So Purdue took this on as much out of mission as, as out of anything else. So I think if it doesn't fit your mission, it's going to be a difficult journey for a university to take this on. Be.
3: Frank, let's talk a little bit about the faculty. Um, I've worked yeah. in online learning almost as long as you, in one form or another. And I've always been curious between the transition of traditional faculty going into online faculty, or, and even if they could do it. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Tell me about the faculty at Global. What type of, what type of teachers are they, do they come out of similar approaches as a traditional college?
0: No, that, that that's a great question. Um, and, and it's really an important one because regardless of the type of a university you are, you're probably only as good as your faculty um, because those are the people who are designing your curriculum, building your programs. Those are the people engaging your students. Um, I, I, let, let me start with something I view really positive. I I talk to students any opportunity I get. Uh, I just did a graduation 10 days ago. And one of the questions I asked students, was the most influential person for you in your time as a student with us? And I'm gonna say that 19 out of 20 times, or about 95% of the time, they mention a particular professor in a particular class and how that professor either really helped them understand the material in the course Or they help them consider career choice that they had to make. Or I had a student, you know, you go back to my profile of my students. um, I'm not able to come to class this week because I'm working double shifts. I have a lot of nursing students, around 3,000 nursing students. And the pandemic was brutal on them. But the faculty said, look. Uh, the material is all online. The, the lectures are recorded. Except, you, you can come back and view it when you want. And if you have questions, just send me an email and I'll try to help you. They felt over and over again that the faculty there helped them be successful. My faculty are not a tenure faculty. Um, I have people who are 100% teachers, if you compared them to IU or Purdue, where, you know, we, an R1 institution, your faculty have multiple expectations of research, teaching and engagement. My my faculty, 100% teachers, but you go to a lot of the, the the R1s, what you find is they have pools of continuing term lectures or professional. That's who I have. I have people who they most of them have an earned PhD. Or similar degree, so I have a law school with you know J.D.s teaching in the law school. Um, they they have made teaching very much their profession, and they're very good at it. So I I, I think those things. I my faculty is just looking at data. Um, on average, I believe they've been with the institution for 12 years without tenure. We 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 do review people very carefully. There are annual reviews. Each person sits down with their, their department head on an annual basis. And, and here's one other thing. I think the word faculty is plural, right? Um, and we, we tend to forget that. We tend to think it's the individual. But actually, it, it is the faculty of, you know, nursing or accounting or whatever the field is. Here's one practice we have that I'm really proud of. We have a three-year cycle where we rebuild every curriculum. Um, And we think as an online institution, you just can't continue to pull up stuff that's three years old without a refresh, even for the web pages. But as part of that, we ask the faculty, has anything changed in you? And we have some fields where, you know, change is quite rapid. Um, But we do it with the entire faculty, whereas a lot of the places at West Lafayette, when we did an exercise like that, I would look at my class and Dean would look at his class and Sentinel would look at his class and we tell ourselves that we had looked at it, and what it means is that our curriculum, or it really is a curriculum, in that courses feed into one another, and that it's really students see a logical progression to what they're doing. So, and they fully embrace it. I think if we were to say we're not going to do that anymore, I would have uh, a revolt, and and there would be a justified revolt. So, I I I really think um, we find these people on places like like Purdue and Westlaw or and NIU they're just called continuing term lectures but to me they're they're the heart and soul of the institution
3: That's fascinating central
2: yeah and you are talking about uh, the industrial revolution and today the industry 4.0 um, it's almost uh, incumbent that everybody develops themselves lifelong uh, it's not a it's not a luxury anymore and you have done some fascinating work with uh, developing nurses uh, further and pilot development uh, around the state around the. US in very interesting formats as I understand uh, uh, you, do you see this as uh, one way for top universities around the world to offer uh, micro credentials certifications or stackable credential options in in fields that are professionally certified and trained as they as they move along
0: well, you know, I really wish I had an answer for this question, because this is probably the one thing uh, that, that that nags me more than anything. And, and I think the challenge is, you know, while everyone has an appreciation for what a bachelor's degree is, or what an associate's degree is, even, you get uh, under that, uh, or less than that, and there is no common accepted definition for what is a micro-credential or what is a badge or what is a certificate and and the words are used in many different ways and it becomes really difficult to to ascertain what they mean uh we we hear all over the united states um, that there's lots of talk about one of the reasons the number of college going students are declining is they're looking for alternative credentials like the growth google certificate would be a, a good example uh, you look at places like Coursera with with the offerings that they have. Um, let let me give you a, a a couple data points, and it kind of brings us what why it's so important for me compared to West Lafayette. At West Lafayette, in the undergrad program, in a typical year, we taught about a million credits, um, you know, in the classroom, with et cetera. and then we awarded about a hundred and fifty thousand credits for transfer credit, which included, you know, your AP and your IB and CLEP test and things like that. Now you come to my institution, believe it or not, I teach a little over a million credits of students in the classroom, but I also have close to a million credits of transfer credit. And of that million credits, um, it, it it's not all AP and uh, most of it, uh is about 3 fourths of it is credit that people came from other institutions so they they started at a community college or somewhere they've transferred in but i have 250,000 credit hours this year that was awarded for things like the growth google certificates uh for military training we have articulated the the training that if you're going to be a medic in the army um, we've looked at it, and guess what? It's a lot like being an EMT. And the the faculty in that area evaluated the training program, and they say, you know, out of our associate's degree in in, in EMT, the Army has taught them and taught them very well. About fifty percent of that, we will give fifty percent credit, and then they take credit from us while they're enlisted in the Army. We're doing that. Uh, the growth Google certificates, we took the content you know anywhere where we're looking central if the learning has been assessed and evaluated we will our, our bias is to try to award credit for what you know and what you can demonstrate and and we're we're much more prone to do that um I I wish the world was to a place where there was a common definition for badges, micros and things like that, because then the whole notion of stackability becomes easier to envision. The other thing that becomes important, you go back to the populations we're dealing with, where roughly half of them are Pell eligible, um, it's financial aid. Most of these Less than uh, associate degree programs are not financial aid eligible, and it's something that's being debated right now in Congress. So, you know, the Coursera courses typically are like I think forty dollars a month, which isn't very much. But if you don't have money, forty dollars is a lot. So, so, so there are barriers there. We we look as much as possible though to we we have a whole unit of faculty basically who spends their time evaluating credit coming from other sources. And that becomes really key to what we're trying to do. Yeah. So That's really wonderful, Frank. Uh, this has been
2: talked about, uh, you know, giving credit to life, uh, life experience for a long time, ever since I was a young faculty. Uh, but it looks like uh,
0: you, you all are doing it, uh, you know, from the numbers. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I think I think there's two reasons that we're doing it. Um the first reason that we're doing it is roughly fifty percent of my students are uh coming not they're coming sponsored, but like yeah. the military is thirty percent of my students. Um and about another twenty five percent are with B 2 B partners. Yeah. I have I think around three thousand Walmart employees going to mm-hmm. school with me. Walmart's paying for their education. Yeah. So what and and you get entire classifications or, or of a worker classification from Walmart. So we look at their job description. We've asked Walmart, give us the training that you have provided. So let's say you're a store manager. Yeah. The store managers at Walmart go through a lot of training, and they've got a lot of experience. And and you combine those two things, you you find the ability, you know what, we can award credit. You, you know how to do annual evaluation. So if you got a, a business degree with an HR course in it, those people probably have already mastered that in most cases and things like that. So, and, and if Walmart is saying for our employees, we view this as a stepping stone for them to move forward. And when you sit with Walmart and walk through their training with them, um, you know, most of it is quite robust because it's serving a very direct purpose and and it ties. Well, I go back to my students, they are looking very much for a, an advance in their career. And anytime they can make that step that makes sense to the company, I, that that gives us the validation that we feel comfortable with.
3: Frank, let's let's kind of change the subject a little bit, and let's talk a little bit about you and kind of how you moved into this. And we we got a bit of a feel for that. But you come from traditional, what I would call a traditional faculty background. I mean, you you've been in the university world for. A number
0: of years. long time. A yeah.
3: long time. And at the same time, though, you moved from one form of academic administration to a very different world, I think, in terms of Purdue Global. Talk to me a little bit about who helped you along the way, because this is a common issue, I think, for all university administrators. They move from one place to another. And I'd like to know a little bit about did you have mentors how did you how did you learn how did you adapt
0: uh, it, it's a it's a good question dean and um i i've been i've lived a very blessed life in in many ways and and i mean as i think of that question I, i've just had some great role models th- th- throughout my life and uh, I'll, I'll just name a couple um when it, when I came to Purdue, the department head we had at the time, his name was Wally Tyner. Uh, Wally died a couple years ago. Wally would tell me, and I I became an associate head relatively early at, in my time, so I worked a lot with Wally. Wally would say a couple things. Number one, be decisive. And, and Wally, an email from Wally typically was one of two words: yes or no. And <laughs> and, and by that, um, what what Wally would say is. Your top performers typically have 10 things they want to do but the reason they're coming to you is they might need resources they might need a grad student they you know they need something to move a particular project forward so they need your blessing your approval your help as as the department head Wally said the worst thing the worst answer you can give them is I need to think about it because the best person, if you say no to their number one idea, will quickly go to number two, well, then kind of do this or number three and 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 so um by being decisive, you're allowing other people in your group to move forward so so that is part of being a leader is not to hold people too long now sometimes it some decisions do require thought and merit, if you would. The, the the second one is when I came into the provost office at West Lafayette, I came in as basically an intern. We called them Provost Fellows, but we had projects that we worked on. The Provost at the time is now the president at Virginia Tech, his name is Tim Sands. Tim's advice to me always was lean into it. Um that 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 there are hard problems and and you're not going to move anything forward by by not really understanding, grasping what the problem is, grasping, and, and we use the word problem or opportunity as another way to say it, that the things that come to, to this level oftentimes have a the degree of complexity in the issues. Do you fully understand the effect on the staff? Do you fully understand the effect on the students, on the faculty? Is it still fine? I, I mean, all these things interplay. But he said, if you don't lean into these things, if you're going to be aloof and sit back and just think that an answer is going to come to you, you won't get there. Um, I, Randy Woodson was another. He was the dean when when I was at West yet He's the president at uh, North Carolina State right now. Randy and I had the benefit of our daughters played soccer together, and Randy. That what the lesson I learned from Randy is he's when you're still around him, you're going to laugh, right? And and you've got to enjoy what you're doing. I think that's really important. And then last but not least, I'll, I'll go back to Mitch Daniels. And, and um, you know, Mitch is not a particular fan of a strategic plan, but he's very much a fan of action plans. And 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 he makes a strong distinction between the two that too often these, you put a lot of effort into what you intend to do, and then nothing happens. So he is much more focused on let's get this job moving forward and, and look, what are the actions we need to take to move it forward. And I think the reason I'm in the job I am today, a number of the things I did in my prior role in West Lafayette, we we, we moved the needle on student success and graduation rates and, and things like that quite a bit in, in the last decade. And I think Mitch saw that as a person who was able to get stuff done. And I think he saw things at Purdue Global that he wanted to move forward. And he has a comfort and a trust with me. And I think that's probably why I'm sitting where I am today.
3: Central, you have the last question.
0: In fact, uh, I I will come to where you are sitting right
2: now. Uh, um, A few years ago, we used to do uh, an interesting forum of university presidents in different regions. We started in uh, uh, North America with, I- in collaboration with IIE, we basically brought thirty university presidents to talk to each other, and what I found is they all, without fail, they said this is the first time we have something where we can talk to each other, our fellow presidents. Doesn't matter, small college, large college, uh, a president as president. Uh, so what I learned from that, and that we, we did this in uh, Europe, in uh, India, in Mexico. Uh, what we learned uh, is the higher you go in higher education, the lonelier it gets. And as and I, I, as a first time uh, president, when he took up this chancellor position, uh, uh, it was an onset of <laughs> the pandemic. Uh, so I'm sure there were a lot of lonely nights, uh, days. That you you thought about things. So, what are some keys to your success as uh, president and the leader in higher education? The reason why I'm asking this, uh, this is going to be uh, going to go to many presidents of universities around the world. I, I'm sure that that bothers them as well. You know, how do I succeed? Who do I talk to?
0: Great, great question. And uh, you know, I I'll start. I'm not sure that it's all that lonely because I have so many people seeking my time. <laughs> you know? Um, and, 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 uh, if anything, you know, I have an amazing executive assistant and we're constantly scrambling because one more person wants to get on my calendar. Um, so, but, but what, what I do, uh, for me individually, I really find, um, that it's important. I don't know that I have enough time for careful reflection. And um, fortunately, or unfortunately, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I've gone from being somebody who was a did a lot of biking and that kind of exercise to so now I walk. And I walk almost every night, and I find that that's the time that I just try to sit and and i for me i i need to allow the different aspects of a question or an issue in front of me just to walk through them uh I, I would say listening is really important you have many voices coming to you um one of the things that i ask people who interact with me on a regular basis is give me the information in digestible bites you know, there's a tendency for people to want to give you a 20 page paper. And I said, but what does it say? You know, what, 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 you know, give me the abstract. And and if I need more information, you know, to the, to a large extent, I rely upon the expertise of the team that I have around me. Um, I, you know, I, I signed my name to title four documents saying that we have complied with every federal regulation for financial aid um now the the team that I have and the person that I have working in that area are phenomenal and i when Melissa Eckenrod tells me that they've done a and B and C and D, and I've spent time with her. I think that's one of the things you have to do you I have to be really comfortable with the people working for me so so listening is part of it um the 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 a, another aspect i think to being a president that's really important is to keep reading um you know, and and podcasts in a way have become an alternative source of media, right? Um, so I listen to some podcasts on, on a regular basis with the notion I'm li- I'm listening for ideas. I'm list- you know, you, you raise the question about micro credentials and things like that. I want to know what Scott Pulsifer and Paul LeBlanc and others are thinking about this same question, and 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 it, because you can find I if there's a good idea. I have no qualms in copying it and bringing it over, especially if it helps more students be successful. I think where it becomes lonely, in particular, is when you get to some of the really hard decisions. Um, You know, and, and if you have a strong team, when you get to the reaching the decision, you should be fully informed. But at the end of the day, the team is not it's not something that's up for a vote. It's something that actually you have you're weighing the pros and cons and you're trying to, in some case, reach a middle ground. In some cases, there is no middle ground. It's going to be this or that. And some people perceive themselves as winners or losers in the transaction. You have to remind yourself that I'm, I'm concerned about the future of the university and the direction of what we're trying to do as a university. And I always remind myself, are we doing things that are going to help more students be successful? And and that's by more work around student success, that's efforts to have more students graduate with less debt or no debt, if at all possible. Um, and then last, but not I'll go back to Wally Tyner. I, I need to be as decisive as I possibly can be. And I need the people around me, you know, sometimes we're in budget season right now, and I, I probably won't have my budget finalized because there's a whole bunch of people have to agree to my proposal. Probably won't have it for several more days, but I have people. But if you fund my, my new unit, I need to get going. I said, if is the important word there. And 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 I've made a recommendation, and it goes to the board and things like that. But I'm, I'm not going to let you start doing something, you know, even if I'm quite sure that this is going to happen, we're going to, we're going to be 100% sure before we go to the extent of, you know, hiring new people and, and establishing things like that.
3: Well, Frank, I think we've used most of our time and you've been most generous with yours. We'd like to thank you um, for being with us today and some great insight in terms of Purdue Global but also about yourself and leadership it's it's I think it's exactly the tone and the thing that we want to be able to hear and I think our audience wants to hear about so thank you very much and this concludes the episode of higher ed without borders and of course if you'd like to do comments on today's show or even suggest future guests or topics make sure that you go to www.higheredwithoutborders.com the comments section We do read our emails, and yes, we even reply. And um, I want to say thank you to our guest again, Dr. Frank Dooley, and of course, on behalf of Dr. Central Nathan, Edge Alliance, our production team, and myself. Thank you very much. And make sure to subscribe. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for joining us today. EDU Alliance is an international higher education consulting firm with offices in Abu Dhabi since 2014 and Bloomington, Indiana since 2017. Nathan and Hoke along with their team of experienced education professionals have assisted over 30 universities in nine countries. If you wish to learn more about higher ed without borders, please go to our website at www.higheredwithoutborders.com. You will find details on our podcast, contact information, and EduAlliance's services. Thank you.